This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Homestand, the official podcast of the Kansas City Royals. I'm your host, Carrie Lipper Gillespie, and I am honored today for our guest, Royals Hall of Famer, Jeff Montgomery. How are you doing? Well, doing great. Glad to be here and uh, be part of your podcast. It's so crazy to call you Jeff because you're Monty to everyone here. So even just saying your first name, I like forget that that's your first name. You're just Monty. Yeah, I don't get called Jeff very often. Maybe my wife, that's about it. Okay. Not if you've like done something wrong or whatever. She doesn't give you the full name. No, I usually don't get... I just get stares. I, I usually, I thought you were going to say, I usually don't do anything wrong. <laughs> no, I do a lot wrong. <laughs> we're so excited to have you here today and chat with you more. Um, you're such a legend in Royals history, and I think there's a lot to dive in here. So let's let's hit it off. You're from a small town in Ohio, correct? Right. Yes, very small town, uh, rural town, south of Columbus, east of Cincinnati, um, about 5,000 people in my hometown. Wow, so a really small town. Now, you you did a lot of sports growing up, didn't you? Basketball, um, football as well, but baseball was always number one. Tell us about the other sports you did. Well, I was uh, a pretty decent athlete as far as other sports. Uh, football was a opportunity for me in college to play football in college, but I really didn't feel like I had a chance to excel to the level that I would like to. Um, being somewhat undersized and I wasn't very fast. Um, but I, I I felt like I played the game right mm-hmm. um, and I was successful in my football career. But with football being in the fall and baseball being in the spring, it was a really tough situation for me because I had to make a decision if I was going to play football before baseball season came around. And I really didn't want to take the chance on missing out on opportunity to play baseball in college. So fortunately that worked out and uh, I was drafted uh, I'm sorry, I was given a nice scholarship to go to Marshall University, then drafted out of Marshall University. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose Marshall? Well, it was my fourth, fourth choice. Uh, Your fourth uh, choice? My fourth choice, okay. yes. We don't always get what we want. No, so true. But uh, number one was Ohio State. Okay. Growing up in a small town in southern Ohio, everyone's a Buckeye fan. Yeah, of course. And uh, I wanted uh, I wanted to do that. And unfortunately, the uh, coaching staff at Ohio State indicated that they didn't feel I had the ability to play Big Ten baseball. Oh, wow. So number two was Miami of Ohio. And I thought that would be a nice uh, opportunity. I had a good baseball program. I actually went in the winter and I threw a, a bullpen session for the coach at uh, Miami of Ohio. And he basically said, hey, we'd love to have you on our team, but we don't have any money to offer you, no scholarship to offer you. And my dad said, well, he doesn't need the opportunity. He needs the scholarship. Yeah. So uh, number three was Ohio University, right down the road from where I grew up. They didn't offer me a scholarship. Then Marshall gave me a nice package as far as going to Marshall. And it really worked out well because I had a chance to start my freshman year in college. So I was able to really kind of build 
on that uh, opportunity. Mm -hmm. Do you see now how it worked out for the best? Like you say now it was your fourth choice, but it sounds like everything worked out like it was supposed to. Well, I think for any athlete, you have to have, you need the opportunity to perform. Mm -hmm. You have to get repetitions. And for me going to Marshall, as opposed to say going to Ohio State, uh, as a freshman, I probably would not have played a lot at Ohio State. Uh, At Marshall, I played a lot as a freshman. I got a lot of opportunities. I was a starting pitcher and uh, was able to kind of open some eyes. That was probably my best year college-wise with regards to my my numbers, my statistics, and and all of that. But um, eventually it it worked out great because uh, being drafted, basically. uh, And I think the thing that's interesting is my, my junior year, which is when I was drafted, I didn't have a very good season statistically. But the last two games that I pitched, uh, I pitched very well. And there were scouts at that at those two games to watch players on the University of Kentucky is one of the games, and the other was Ohio University. So there were scouts that were watching other players, and they saw me pitch. And a week later, I received a letter from the Cincinnati Reds inviting me to a tryout camp at Riverfront Stadium. So I go to the tryout camp, and I think I did okay. I didn't really know what to base it on or judge anything on and sure enough about a week later I get drafted by the Reds and it's interesting because at that time the draft was not televised it wasn't publicized there was no internet well there was an internet but we didn't know about the internet like we do now and I was playing golf with my father and I uh, we get up to the um, toward the green uh, at our country club and we see my mother and my sister and we're like, what's going on? And we go over there. My mother handed me a telegram. And the telegram said, congratulations, you've been drafted in the ninth round by the Cincinnati Reds. Someone will be in contact with you about a uh, opportunity to sign a contract. And that was where it all started. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I have that in my notes, actually, that I read an article saying that you found out you were drafted via telegram, yes. which just blows my mind. It's not, I mean, was there a carrier pigeon or something that brought it to you? I'm just like, No, my mother and sister <laughs> did. such a different time. <laughs> yeah. You know, now everything is so instantaneous. What, what was going through your head when that happened? And that's your hometown team, too, so it's so cool. Yeah, I kind of felt like I'm drafted by the Reds. Uh, I followed the Reds my, my entire you know, childhood. I, I love the Big Red Machine and Pete Rose and jo- Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan, the whole crew. Um, and I'm thinking, hey, I'm drafted by the Reds. I'm going to, you know, drive 100 miles down the road to Cincinnati at Riverfront Stadium. And my, you know, I'm going to be playing in the big leagues. However, I didn't, I didn't realize that there were certain levels in the minor leagues that I had to make it through in order to accomplish that goal. But uh, over, over a five-year period, essentially taking one step up the ladder every year. Fortunately, I was eventually called up by the Reds and my uh, you know my dream came true yeah it really did so cool and now you were traded then to the Royals February 15th 1988 and that obviously looking back was so pivotal for you and you never went back pretty much you're still here even in retirement but I'm sure at the time it stung a little bit to leave that team that you saw all your dreams come true with and like I said it was your hometown team so when that happened what was going through your head was there some some defeat in you not, not really. I was fairly excited, to be honest. Well, in fact, I'll say I probably was the happiest guy in baseball. Um, but it, it, it was interesting how it all happened. So my dream comes true uh, of eventually playing baseball for the Cincinnati Reds. My first manager was Pete Rose, my favorite player all time yeah. growing up. So those were really, really uh, big accomplishments for me. But um, I didn't feel like I performed great. Like a lot of players, now that I'm I've been through the process, both as a player and now as a broadcaster. 
you see players come in and, and they spin their wheels occasionally trying to get through that period, that acclimation period to where they establish themselves as bona fide major league players. And you just never know what the timetable is going to be. But going through it myself, um, my first season, I didn't have a lot of opportunities to pitch in what I'll call like high leverage situations. I sure. uh, had, had one start during uh, that period. But um, so I, you know, the season ends. And then I remember like in December, um, my wife Tina and I were living in Cincinnati. And when we were called up to the Reds, there was one particular wife that didn't treat my wife very kindly, which is kind of, I now have learned that it's kind of common because the veteran wives see the young players' wives as like competition for their jobs. They can, yeah. Right. So, you know, they have to kind of earn their stripes. So anyway, this player's uh, wife wasn't nice to, to my wife and she gets, or, or he gets traded to the Kansas City Royals. And my wife is like, that's what she deserved to go to Kansas. <laughs> so it, it, so that, that happened in December. And then in February, I'm traded to the Royals. Yeah. And I was excited because I'm thinking, I'd never heard of like Mark Gubazar or Bud Black. or I, I, the, only, the only Royals I had heard of, honestly, were George Brett, Dan Quisenberry, Bo Jackson. I, kn- I mean, I'd never heard of Frank White. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was a National League guy growing up, so I, I didn't know about some of the really good players that the Royals had. Something, gosh, competition-wise, I think I got a real good chance to be sure. a big leaguer, you know, in Kansas City. So I tell my wife, I say, "Hey, I just got a phone call. I got traded. You want the good news or the bad news?" She says, "Good news." I said, "Well, it's it's to a team that I feel like I have a great chance, you know, to maybe have an opportunity to big leagues with." She says, "What's the bad news?" I go, "It's the Kansas City Royals." <laughs> so she's, "Oh my gosh, I should have never said that, you know." So anyway, it, it kind of backfired a little bit, but. After a couple of years of being here in Kansas City, we we would never leave. Yeah, you know, she she really grew into the uh, you know the the program and bought into the city and you know all the charitable things we've done and it just worked out really well. So a little you know turn of events and a few bumps in the road, but eventually. Uh, landing here in Kansas City was great. Yeah, you ended up where you were supposed to be. And the transition is always hard when you go from something you've known to something that's new, finding your way, fitting in with new players and finding the spot you're going to be in. Like you said, it takes time to develop yourself as a big league pitcher, but then also to find out where you fit. Um, you know, you're known as as a really great closer, but you didn't start out that way. You had to like work your way up to that and earn that. So walk us through some of that, like finding your footing in a new organization and finding your footing as a player in general. So I told you I was excited about being traded to the Royals because I felt like I've got a great chance to make this club. I uh, go to spring training camp, I mean, because I got traded like a week before camp opened. So I go to spring training camp and one of the first person... Uh, first people that I met was John Sherholtz, the, the general manager at the time of the Royals. And he says, hey, Monty, you know, welcome to the Royals. We're glad to have you. Uh, we looked at your numbers uh, in the Reds organization, both as a starter and a reliever. And we feel like you would be much, uh, you're more cut out to be a relief pitcher. So we're going to send you to Omaha to be a closer. And I'm like, oh, gosh, my, my bubble just burst because I thought I'm going to make this ball club. And now 20 minutes into my career, I'm going to the minor leagues. However, I pitched really well in spring training. I made the decision really hard for them to uh, to send me down. But I was there for a, a month or two and was called up, and that was it. Wow. All right, let's take a quick break here. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, 
Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Like at the moment, you're like, this isn't what I want. But it sounds like that's what you needed to get to where you were going ultimately. So it's one of those things in hindsight where you see how all the pieces line up so nicely. But in the moment, you wouldn't have chosen that for yourself. Right. Well, in... in I think every pitcher somewhat aspires to be a starting pitcher. Yeah. Uh, I was a starting pitcher my entire amateur baseball life. And when I was drafted by the Reds in my rookie ball camp, I go there and, and the manager says, hey, I think you would, you're cut out to be a relief pitcher. And I'm like, gosh, not sure if my arm will be able to handle that because it'd be hard for me to pitch back-to-back days. Yeah. And he said, we'll give it a try and we'll see how, see how it works out. And it worked out great. I mean, I just really uh, got off to a great professional career as a relief pitcher and that's what I did until the last really the last year plus of my minor league career when they made me a starting pitcher because the Reds were stacked with relief pitchers so mm-hmm. they thought we need starter starting pitchers so that was great I get called up as a starter I pitched in 700 career games and 699 win relief so I had only one start so uh, that was it that's crazy as a pitcher I'm sure you loved the big outfield here in Kaufman did you not I never really Put a lot of thought into the outfield honestly okay. i never i mean it's certainly a luxury to pitch in a big ballpark yeah but i never pitched to fly ball contact i pitched a ground ball contact yeah so a lot of a lot of times there were balls that were hit that would certainly be out of the ballpark and other ballparks and warning track power here in kaufman stadium and then royal stadium but uh yeah it's a, it's a great pitcher's ballpark but i never really felt like I, I couldn't it didn't matter if i'm pitching in fenway park or royal stadium I pitch exactly the same. Yeah. I never pitched to the ballpark. I always pitched to my strength. And my strength was being able to execute pitches down the strike zone. Yeah. I mean, kudos to you for finding that. I think there are some people who would try and adjust their game, especially today. Things are so analytical. Um, and I think back then it was a simpler time. It was just like, play your game. Like, do what feels good to you. Do what works for you. And, and maybe don't question it. Now we have access to so many statistics and analytics, which is great, but it can be a double-edged sword, and it just shows how much the game has changed since you played, correct? Well, I, I watch these guys every day. I don't care if they're guys that go to the plate with a bat in their hand or guys on the mound. I mean, the game has changed so dramatically, not just the style of, uh, you know, the, of the game itself and the way the, the numbers and the analytics have really played a part in that change, but just the strength and the ability of the athletes. I, I mean, I... Not long ago, I watched Drew Waters hit a 465-foot home run. I mean, there was no one in my day that could hit a 655 or 65 465-foot home run. Bo Jackson might come close to it, yeah. But he was one of the best athletes on the planet, yeah. But now, players who are essentially players that no one's ever heard of come to the big leagues and are hitting balls 450 feet, yeah, and pitchers that people have never heard of are throwing baseballs over 100 miles an hour in my um, during my career there were maybe a handful I would say probably a dozen or less players pitchers that had the ability to get on that pitcher's mound and throw a baseball that you could tell without looking at the radar gun just with the naked eye that there's something different there about the way this ball 
comes out of his hand, like a Randy Johnson, for example, or a Roger Clemens, yeah. or a Pedro Martinez. Uh, there were just a handful of guys that, with the naked eye, you could tell there's something different. Now, obviously, everything's measured, and you yeah. can you can you can you can see that it's 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 publicized after every pitch on the on the board. But it's just a different game to where strength and and, and velocity has has really become an important factor in the game. Uh, some great players, Hall of Fame level players, potentially would never have had great careers in today's game because they didn't have that raw, you know, talent set to be uh, at the elite level. Yeah. Other players would have been given opportunities ahead of them because they had higher ceilings. They mm-hmm. had more spin on their fastball, or, their, or they had more launch angle on their, you know, off the bat, or more exit velocity. I mean, I'll use a player like um, like a George Brett, for example. George Brett would, I mean, he would be a great player regardless because of his abilities. But there are a lot of players who maybe didn't have George Brett's hand-eye coordination that wouldn't have had big big league careers mm-hmm. because they didn't have that ceiling. So it's uh, it's interesting how things have changed so dramatically. Just say in less than 10 years yeah. I, mean, I mean less in in the last 5 to 10 years things have changed dramatically with regards to the style of the game and the style of the player has to be to play this game. Yeah, I totally agree. Even in the time I've been watching, I remember in the the mid 90s to the late 90s to the early 2000s like the game has shifted so much. It's it's harder than ever now to to hit, you know, to be a hitter, frankly. Um it's harder now than ever to be as you said an effective pitcher and it's just different. And I I think back in when you were playing too, like pitchers could pitch longer too. They were I mean, going a full game um, was not as it's pretty rare now there's not a lot of guys who go a full game and so just little things like that have shifted how how the game is played what do you think for the better for the worse what's your opinion I think it's a good game now I think it's way better now than it was say say three or four years ago okay. I thought the game got really bad it became a boring game mm-hmm. to me because it was it was either a strike a strikeout a walk or a home run yep. it was just everything was fairly predictable and the games were taking so long because of the of the power and the, and all the numbers and you have full max effort on every pitch and you know the players just didn't seem to have or the pitcher didn't seem to have the ability to consistently command the baseball because of the effort they were putting into it i think the pitch clock has been phenomenal for the game i think it's really allowed the game to have a pace that people can now watch it and say hey this is Enjoyable. This is no longer a thing. It's like it's a seventh inning. Let's leave. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're mm-hmm. you're able to watch a game. And I think the sh- eliminating the shifts was another thing because I, I think that's one thing that changed the game dramatically. Say going back 10, 12, 15 years ago, when players were hitting line drives over the second baseman's head where they used to play, and suddenly it's a one hopper to the second baseman yeah. or the shot shortstop who shifted over there. And there's nothing to show for it. So the game changed because of all this. And I think baseball did a great job in kind of turning the pendulum back the other way. I think there's still some more things that hopefully will enhance it even more. But I think it's a good game. But I think we went through a stale period where it was kind of hard to watch time. Yeah. Now, you mentioned some names before. Was there any guys from your time playing, whether it was a, a, another fellow pitcher or a hitter, that just, you were like, this guy's different. He blew you away. Like I said, whether it was another pitcher or a hitter you faced that you were just like, this guy's, this is this is crazy. Well, it was always fun to watch Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah. I mean, he was a, such a dynamic player. 
uh, I had the good fortune of going on an all-star tour to Japan on an exhibition uh, series that lasted about three weeks, and Griffey Jr. and Sr. actually were on that tour. So it was great to see him. He and I both had an interest in, in cars, so when I would be in Seattle, I'd always he'd always take me out to the parking lot and show me which particular car he had and how he had it kind of uh, all tricked up and all that. But anyway, just a, a, I loved watching him play. I loved competing against him. Uh, he just seemed to be the player that had that flair, that that fun factor mm-hmm. that everybody just kind of gravitated toward. Yeah, I think he's one that a lot of people it's he sticks out from that time for sure. Now being a closer is a really high leverage situation. There's a lot of pressure that comes into it. How did you handle that pressure? How did you choose to like move forward with the job? You said you pitched the same no matter where you were. And I would think that that's the, a good mentality to have no matter if you're up by three runs and it's a safe situation or if you're up by one and you got to hold on for dear life. Yeah, my um, I'm a very analytical person. Um, I was a computer science major. So I think that's just kind of the way I think. But when I was on the mound, I would always try to look at the situation. We, we hear and talk so much about like situational hitting, mm-hmm. man on third, less than two outs, fly ball, get a man, whatever, you know, situational hitting. I was a situational pitcher. Uh, I knew if I go into one run lead, I got to pitch differently than if I have say a three run lead. So I always kind of felt like I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm at the blackjack table here and I'm, 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 I'm getting my cards and I'm trying to see, figure out, okay, I'm, I'm going to play here or I'm not going to play here. And that's why I was with pitching. I, I, I knew that this guy in the batter's box can't hurt me. Mm-hmm. All right? and then, or I knew that this guy is the most important batter I'm going to face. So I just tried to really focus in on the situation. And, and, and again, kind of like playing blackjack, you know if you're going to take a hit or you're not going to take a hit. And that's the way I tried to pitch. Now, you don't always... Uh, execute uh, and sometimes you do execute but that guy on the other side is getting a big paycheck you know and sometimes they beat you so I could handle that if I if I execute a good pitch and I got beat I could handle that mm-hmm. I didn't like it when I attempted to execute a pitch I didn't execute a pitch and I got beat because the most important thing to me every time that I started a game or took the hill even late in the game was my my job is to put us in a position where we can all be shaking hands at the, after the last pitch is thrown. And if I do my job, whether I, I do it with flair or um, it's boring or traumatic, whatever, if we're shaking hands at the end, that's really what it's all about. And I think that sometimes was a real factor for me. A lot of times you, you, you hear the um, expression, don't be afraid to be afraid. Well, I was afraid. When I pitched, I was, I, I, I think the fear, the, the fear of failure, probably more than anything, it drove me. Yeah. Uh, instead of being, a, you know, five foot 10, 175 right handed through 88 miles an hour, I felt like I became 6'10 and 285 pounds and I could throw 100 miles an hour. It just, it brought out, it, it made me feel like I was better than I probably really was. Let's pause for a word from our sponsors. No, I, I mean, I think you all, we all got to be a little delusional, I think, at times, because it helps us bring the best of us forward, even at times when we are scared. So it, it sounds like that's what you had to do to, like, get your head in the game, right? And, you know, you had 304 saves, right? I have to poke fun at 
at your uh, your teammate Joel because he always says between the two of us, you know, between the two of us here, Monty, <laughs> we have uh, 304 saves. He always says that uh, when you're on broadcast. Is there any one of those saves that you remember more than the uh, more than the other that like stood out for some reason? It was a really gritty game where you really had to dig deep. I think the ones where you go in where there are three runners on base and you have to get out of the inning without without allowing one of those inherited runners to score. I'm not sure how many times that happened, but when that happened, that probably was much more of a success for me. Yeah. And the role as a closer has changed dramatically. I mean, it, it really essentially changed during my 10 years as a closer. A closer used to be a guy that came in with bases loaded and maybe one out in the eighth inning. And you get through that eighth inning, and then you go back up for the ninth inning. Or you come in in the seventh inning and you get the last batter. Sometimes it's, you know, it's, it, it's usually it was more than one inning. And that was, it was just very different. And then around late 80s, early 90s, and I think it really started with Dennis Eckersley with the Oakland Athletics and Tony uh, La Russa as his manager, started having a high level of success and just using him by one inning. Mm-hmm. And he might be available four or five days a week that way instead of, like the Dan Quisenberries here in Kansas City, Quiz would pitch 120 innings a year. and But he was in his prime, and he was able to do that. Dennis Eckersley at that stage was, he had a lot of mileage on him. And I think Tony LaRusso realized that, hey, I don't want to run you into the ground, and I want to have you available when the postseason comes around. Mm-hmm. So he limited his usage to one inning max. And teams started doing more and more and more of that. And I think really even up to the mid like the, the Royals in, in their World Series years, they proved to baseball how success, successful you can be with those dominant relief pitchers starting in the sixth inning. So mm-hmm. you get five innings from your starting pitcher or six innings, the game's essentially over. And La Russa started that, again, back in the late 80s, early 90s, but it really just it evolved, it evolved more and more and more, and suddenly that's where the game is. And that's where we are today. Now, I want to talk some about your broadcasting career now because I know you kind of fell into this. We were talking about this the other day while we were in rain delay. You kind of told me the story, but that wasn't really something you thought you would do, but uh, it kind of just happened. Tell us some about that. Yeah, I had really no aspirations to be um, a TV broadcaster. I, I probably felt like if I was going to do anything baseball-related career-wise after, base, after my pitching career, I would probably work like for my agent or as an agent for players. Uh, I was heavily involved in the uh, Major League Baseball uh, Player Association. I was our player rep for nine seasons. So I got a good sense and feel for that side of the of the game. And I felt like that's what I would do. But I started coaching my boys after I, after I retired because my father coached me all through my amateur career. And it was such a, a bonding experience. And I wanted to experience that with my with my boys. So I did nine years of coaching with my boys. And then uh, I get a call from Mike Swanson after the ninth season of coaching amateur baseball, and he asked me if I would be interested in being part of the Royals television broadcast crew. And I said, sure, let's give it a try. But I didn't hear anything for months. And then suddenly, in, I think it was in late May of whatever year, probably 2009 or 2010, I get a call from the Royals TV producer, um, Kevin Shank, and he says, hey, I heard you're interested in some TV. If, uh, if you still are, we'd like to have you. I go, sure, when do I start? He goes, how about today at 3 o'clock? <laughs> so I showed up at 3 o'clock at a coat and tie, and that's where I started. So, uh, I mean, literally no training at all. 
And I was really bad. I mean, it was so hard doing live television. I'm, I'm lucky I'm still around. No, you're great now. <laughs> I will say it takes time to get used to it. Like you said, live television is so different and it can be really hard. But you're so great at it now. It's hard to imagine you not being good at it. The other thing I love about you is you're, you're such a baseball guy. Like there are some guys I know that have played this sport and have retired and they don't want anything really to do with it anymore. But I love picking your brain about this team or about other teams or just about baseball stuff. You're just such a baseball guy and you have so much baseball knowledge in general. Is there something that you've learned about baseball that you didn't realize until you were a broadcaster? You know what I mean? You see the game differently when you're a broadcaster. Is there something you've learned after you were done playing about the game? I think for me the important part is to have a, a, a more of a uh, like a ten thousand foot view of the game instead of being so focused and locked in, like as a player that you are on everything you do every day. Like at three thirty, you're gonna you know do some some work on you know some arm weights. At four o'clock, you're gonna run. I mean, just a little kind of like the the routine type stuff that you would do. And batting practice over, you get ready, you go to the bullpen and you know, third inning you do this, fifth inning, you know, you get away from that kind of the small, like the the, the detail stuff. And now I look at it more big picture mm-hmm. and try to be open-minded to things that are going on. One thing I've learned from this broadcaster side is um, just the ability to try to figure out why things happen. And as, as an analyst, the primary question I have to answer is why. You know, why was Brady Singer so dominant in one of his starts? Or why was, name a hitter, just, Bobby. Why, Bobby was, why, why was Bobby uh, struggling in April but so effective in July? Yeah. I mean, why, why did those things happen? And, and that's, that's the thing that you can use your experience and your knowledge to try to explain that to the audience. And sometimes you don't know the answer, but talking to the coaching staff or talking to the players – it's it's really in, um, it's interesting and important to find out the answers to those questions to why. Yeah. Now you've been with Joel as a teammate for 14 years. You guys are so great together. I love watching your guys' interactions, and it's so natural between you two. And after 14 years, what what more could you ask for? Why do you think you guys have such a good relationship on air and, and work so well together? You know, we I think uh, we're very different. We're just we're very different type. Um, we're the odd couple, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but we, you know, we, we spend hours and hours and hours together during the baseball season. Almost every day we're together for a number of hours, more, more time with Joel than I am with my family. Uh, and then the off season, we, we rarely have conversation. I mean, maybe a few text messages or, so we have our, 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 our feast and famine, right? Um, but we've never had a bad day. We really, I mean, neither one of us has ever had a day where we say, gosh, I wish I didn't have to go to work with that guy. <laughs> you know, so it's, 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 it's been really, it's been, uh, we've been very fortunate. Yeah. Uh, we built a good relationship and he helped me tremendously along the way when I first started doing television. Uh, Paul Splitoff was really, really instrumental uh, for me as far as learning things. Ryan Lefevre has been great. And, and now, like with Mike Sweeney and Jeremy Guthrie coming into our crew, I feel like I've got a responsibility to try to help ease them into this position and, and allow them to, to become as good as they can be. Yeah, they're coming from the same place, being a former player and, and now going to being a broadcaster, which can be a jump. But you're, you're right to have them, you know, have someone to guide you in there is always great. Now, you love golf. You're a golfer. Tell us some about your golf journey. 
You've been golfing your whole life? Like, when did you become a golfer? Well, I started golfing when I was probably nine or 10 years old. Um, I never had any lessons. I never was on a junior golf program. I just played golf. Yeah. You know, as an athlete and, you know, from athleticism. I played a lot of golf for a while, then started having children, and I didn't hardly play golf at all. And golf's a hard game, and it's a game that you have to work at pretty diligently to to really be as good as you want to be. <laughs> Maybe you're never as good as you want to be. Be as be as close to good as as you want to be. Um, so I got away from it. In fact, I was uh, al- almost going to throw my golf clubs in the lake one day. I was playing so bad and just give it up for good. Uh, and spend my time at the beach or spend my time doing something I, you don't get frustrated about. <laughs> and then I said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this challenge and I'm going to work at it and try to become a better golfer. And I've done that. I'm, I mean, I'm not a great golfer, but I, I really enjoy it now. And it's, it's one of the things that now it gives me that purpose, that competition. Mm-hmm. And you're really, you're competing against a beautiful golf course yeah, is what you're nature. competing against. And, and it's enjoyable. Yeah. And uh, every day is so very different. I mean, one day you kind of feel like you've got it mastered. Next day, it kicks you in the rear. So it's uh, it's just a day-to-day thing. And uh, I would do it every day if I could. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of baseball in that sense. And that one day you got it and you're like, dang, I'm throwing gas, right? You know, everything's landing. The next day you can't find, you know, home plate or whatever. It's very humbling. I feel like it's similar to baseball in that. No, it really is. And it's especially if you take it seriously. And, and some people do, some people don't. Um, I'd probably be better if I didn't take it so seriously as far as my attitude. And there are times when I play and I'm like, I'm just, I don't care what my score is. I just want to work on some things and enjoy this day away from whatever. But uh, it, it's always been something that uh, my mother was an outstanding golfer. My dad was a really good golfer. And it was good for our family because it, it gave us a chance to do a lot of things together. Yeah, I love that. All right, Monty, we're going to go to our lightning round. Are you ready for these? I hope so. You are going to be ready. This this is all fun stuff, I swear. All right. Favorite ballpark to pitch at? Kauffman Stadium. Oh, besides Kauffman. To pitch. To pitch or to play in? For you to pitch in. I want to know for you to pitch in. I had a lot of ballparks I really liked, but I maybe didn't pitch as well in. I liked pitching in in Minneapolis at the Metrodome. I, I don't know my numbers, but I, I I guess I probably had pretty good numbers in there. Oh, really? I was thinking you were going to say like Shea Stadium or, I don't know, one of those ones that aren't around anymore or something. No, I don't have any of those no. that I would say would be up on my list. All right, the Metrodome it is. Yeah. Wouldn't have been my guess, but there you go. Give us your Mount Rushmore of closers. I got to put Mariano Rivera right you there. You do, you do. I mean, he's uh, a guy that I, I kind of watched when he came up, and obviously he, he became the beast. Yeah. Um, I'm going to put Dan Quisenberry in there. Nice. Just because, in my mind, he's the greatest relief pitcher in Royals history. Okay. Um, he was a guy that has a championship ring. He's got Rolaise Relief Awards. Um, and he was he was a guy that went out there every day and gave his team a chance to win a baseball game. Um, another guy that I'm going to throw in there is John Franco. Okay. John Franco uh, was a Reds closer when I was called up, and I think he, I know he got over 400 saves in his career, um, but he was a guy that was very, very instrumental as far as helping me understand that role. And then watching a guy all those years, Lee Smith. Okay. Was another guy that uh, I, I felt like, 
he wasn't just a one inning guy. He was a he was a guy that uh, you could count on year after year after year. Uh, best thing you can whip up whip up in the kitchen? Chicken wings. Really? Yeah. Deep like fry them on the grill or what do you do? Deep fry them? I, I yeah, deep fry them. And I I started doing it gosh, a long time ago. I haven't done it for a while, but I can make really good chicken wings. Oh, well, good to know. We'll expect that. Uh, TV show you grew up watching? Tons. Um I'll, I'll throw my top one would probably be like the Brady Bunch. Okay. That's a good one. If you didn't play baseball, what would you have pursued? Well, I got my degree in computer science, so I'd probably be working uh, behind a monitor somewhere. Oh, gosh. Sounds boring, right? Yeah, but I like that stuff. Okay. There you go. We're glad you're here instead. <laughs> Are you an early morning person or a night owl? Normally a night owl. Okay. Even, uh, I think as a baseball player, just kind of adjust your biological clock to being a late person now on the road uh during the baseball season there are times that i'm still in bed by noon i mean it's 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 easy for me to sleep in a a nice hotel temperature down about 65 (laughs) dark shades and a a very comfortable bed i can sleep till noon yeah i think we all could honestly if you have those elements in there um a golf course that you have not yet golfed but would like to a lot of courses uh, in Ireland and Scotland would, would, would compile my, my big list. I've not made the, that trip yet. Uh, I hope to someday. Um, in the States, probably Cyprus. Where's uh, that? It's, it's on the West Coast. It's near Pebble Beach. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure that's beautiful. Because yeah. that one, Pebble Beach is beautiful. Tell us something that you would tell your 18-year-old self. Continue to work hard, but don't be afraid uh, to enjoy the ride. I love that. I love that. Monty, thank you so much for being our guest. It was a pleasure. You got it, Carrie. I love chatting with you. We're so lucky to have you on our broadcast team now, but we're so lucky to have had you as part of our Royals family. So many Royals fans just smile when they think of you, and now they get to see you on TV. They're so lucky to have that. So we're lucky to have you, and we're just glad that you were able to be here with us today. Well, thank you for having me and for those kind words. Yay. Thank you so much for tuning in, you guys. I have been your host, Carrie Lipper Gillespie, and make sure you subscribe, rate, review, all those things, because we've got new episodes coming out all the time. We'll see you again very soon.